Frank Eisenhower from Buena Vista Health joins us to talk about his spiritual awakening. He had the hopes and talent to be a professional baseball player, but after a 20-year binge on drugs and alcohol, it took prison time and a spiritual awakening to get his life turned around. He now works with prisoners and parolees as they start their journey towards recovery. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, a father, an entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict, I deflect with humor, and I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor, and my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth, and I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. Frank, it's um, it's an absolute pleasure to have you come on the uh, podcast today and share maybe a little bit of your story and your experience and um, some of the, the journey along the way. And um, so thanks. Uh, welcome. Thank you. The pleasure is all mine. I'm, I'm grateful to be here, guys. Thank you. I know that welcome, Frank, Frank Frank Eisenhower is with Buena Vista and um, a, a treatment facility. And I'll let him talk about that a little bit. Um, but Frank, what, you know, what is, what I'm interested to hear, and I was actually, before we got on, I was listening to a podcast that you did with, um, Chris Kling. Did I say that yeah. right? Kling? Yep. Yep. Credible interventionist. So I know you've got a lot of experience in that realm, but like, you know, I suspect like most young boys, you know, you, maybe you wanted to be a, a firefighter or a policeman, or maybe you played, you know, you know, uh, cops and robbers or, or cowboys and Indians, which, you know, were things that we did when we were little. Um, and, and today you're, you know, full grown and you've come a whole on journey. What's happened between now and then? And, and how is that uh, dream as a little guy to be a firefighter changed? Well, um, funny story is that, and I hope I'm not going way off track here, but my, my real father was, um, he was actually murdered in the mob, okay? Um, and that was when I was very young. My stepfather, who stepped in the picture when I was very young as well, um, was actually law enforcement. So he was a Chicago policeman, homicide detective um, in gang unit in sh- Chicago for 17 years. And I wish I would have followed his guidance. That's all I can say. Um, you know, I was, I was on track to be a professional athlete, baseball, um, chain of events kind of led me down the wrong road, I guess, if you will. And it kind of, uh, snowballed. And, um, before I knew it, I was kind of so far away from the dream of being somewhat normal that I, I just lost complete track of who I was as an individual. That's a pretty, that's a pretty huge gap between, you know, having your, your father, your biological father, I imagine, be heavily in the gang activity and and then have a police officer as a father that that almost sounds traumatic in and of itself (laughs) well you know i didn't i didn't even learn of this until i was about 14 years old so you know my mom trying to do the right thing protected me from that for reasons i'm sure um that i didn't understand at the time but when i when i when i was notified that i had a real dad and how he had been murdered and that i had another 
story, uh, that threw me into complete disarray. You know, I didn't know what my identity was. I didn't know who I was anymore. I thought this is my perfect little life in a nice suburban neighborhood in Arizona, playing baseball, you know, great neighborhood. Then I learned of this whole other side of my story that just really, uh, like I said, man, it was just completely uh, tailspin. And from that point on out, man, it was it was downhill from there. From the time I was about 14 is when I really started dabbling with alcohol and then marijuana and dabbling with like meth here and there. And then uh, age 21 is when I, I really, I really, I found something that really made me feel better. And it was uh, intravenous uh, opium, opiates. It wasn't heroin yet. It was uh, pharmaceutical grade um, opiates. And that was, that was it. So up to that point, your stepfather, you thought this was, you thought this man was your biological father. Yeah, I called him dad, you know, and, and you know, when my dad was murdered when I was very, very young, um, I, I was too young. I had a few memories, but I didn't even recollect those memories until later on in life. But, you know, he, he treated me as a, as a son. Um, you know, I called him dad. And then that day uh, when my, my grandparents found my mother and said, we want to see our grandson. And I don't know what that looked like, but she was pretty... She, she didn't, um, she made it happen. So this wasn't, this wasn't something that she had been building up to. She didn't, she hadn't been preparing with a story. She, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like that. This was grandma and grandpa show up. They want access. Yep. She caves. So it's just everybody's shell shocked here. Yes. Yep. Including my, you know, my stepfather that, had been protecting us from this lifestyle, you know, and then all of a sudden I'm sure he felt betrayed at some point because our relationship went downhill. Um, my mother was just like, you know, it was just a mess. And, and mob often is family oriented, right? So was grandma and grandpa, I mean, are they, are they still involved in kind of organized oh, crime or was no, this, were they completely they, different and separated? Uh, I mean, they, Sure, off the record, they were probably somehow connected. Grandpa was, you know. I mean, um, my my other my other uncle, my dad's brother, had gotten murdered in a milk truck heist um, a few years before my dad. And then my other uncle was uh, I don't really know the whole story, but he got he got into law enforcement, mm. um, and I, I don't know exactly why. Yeah, it didn't really fit, didn't really fit the bill. That was straight up, up or not, huh? Right. Is this so? Is this interaction with grandma and grandpa? Is this a one-time thing? Have you stayed in contact since? Did that? No. Was there a relationship there? They're both deceased. Um, I, I saw them for two summers in a row, you know, and then I, I stayed in contact with them for a little bit, and then when I started getting heavily into drugs, eighteen is like when I got on my, got out on my own is when I really got heavy into, you know, drinking and dabbling with meth and. Um, weed and hallucinogenics and stuff like that. And I kind of lost contact with everybody for about 20 years until I got sober when I was 40 and they had deceased, um, years ago, both of them. Um, my uncle just passed away. I didn't really talk with him very much. We didn't have a lot in common. Um, and I still talked to one of my aunts and through, and, and funny enough, so through, through that, my first interaction with my grandparents when I went back to Chicago and I, you know, I, I thought I was going to go, visit these strangers. I walked into the house and I remembered everything. It was, it was wild. Like I remembered the smell of the house. I remembered everything. And 
so they told me, because my mom, I mean, this is, we still haven't really talked about this, but she told me that he had got killed in a fire because he was, uh, he did firefighting. Um, he was on the, um, when you're like a part-time fire, what is the reserves or something. So she told me he'd gotten killed in a fire, not expecting my grandparents to spill the beans. And they said, yeah, your dad got killed. Like he got murdered. And they went into detail how it had happened and it was pretty brutal. And they said, oh, and you also have a brother and sister. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. So that on top of all these things I'm learning, I have a brother and sister who don't want anything to do with me because I was, you know, my dad lived that lifestyle of, of being with um, several women at a time, the mob life, you know, Italian guy, good looking dude, money, power, women. Um, you know, my mom was the side piece, one of them. So when his family, his uh, son and daughter found out that I was in the picture, like they didn't want anything to do with me. And it wasn't until about, I think two years ago, my sister found me on LinkedIn and she reached out. She goes, Hey, if you're Frank DiBartolo, um, we may be related. And I was like, I've been waiting for that day forever. And like we talked and we, she came out and visited and we just like reminisced. We didn't reminisce, but like we, you know, we, we're, we're blood. Like she knew my dad. I didn't know my dad. That was her daddy. And you know, like we, she just painted the picture of who he was as an individual. And, um, you know, it was, it was a lot of really cool closure finally, because my whole life, man, I felt like, you know, shit, I'm not good enough for these guys. They don't want anything to do with me. Like, what did I do wrong? And when I finally, when I got sober at 40, I was like, you know, what ain't my problem. And I, you know, like I, I, a lot of closure came to me when I finally had that burning bush moment and got sober, you know, but then just things started falling into place for me. So. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot of history and a lot of action going on. How did baseball play into all of that? Uh, so I, I, I mean, I played baseball from the time I was six years old. I was just a natural. And, um, by the time I was in high school, I was already having scouts come out and check me out at sophomore, junior year. I mean, I, I had a bright, bright future in baseball. I was just, I had the natural ability to just dominate on the baseball field, man. And, um, it just slowly kind of trickled to things less important and girls are more important and partying was more important getting in fights is more important and you know and that just became I, I just lost the passion to play baseball because you know i was just so in a in an emotional tailspin i guess you could say that i just i forgot that was one of my passions because i just got sucked into the vortex of you know um my identity and and just not knowing who i was as a person anymore you know i mean that's a lot for a 14 year old kid to take on that's a, that's a heavy burden or not even a burden, but it's a heavy realization to, you know, to, to come to terms with, you know, at 14, like here I am, this person, nope, that's not who you are. This is who you are. And I, I just couldn't comprehend the gravity of that situation, you know? So, so how did that kind of bombshell affect the relationship that you had with your mom? What happened to that trust level? You know, man, um, I don't think any kind of trust was broken because I couldn't fully comprehend. And I'm going to be really frank here that when I was younger, man, I was, I was clueless. I was just, I was clueless. You know, I, I, I didn't put two and two together. I, I didn't hold her. Um, I don't want to say accountable, but I didn't, I had no grudge against her. You know, like I, I mean, obviously I wondered like why, you know, like I was more mad at my dad. 
you know, I kind of just, I, I guess, innately understood that my mom was probably protecting me once I found out the real background of my dad and who he was as a person. Uh, he was a pretty brutal individual, you know, so. Um, and then I started hearing little stories throughout my life. And especially in the last five years, I heard a lot of stories, especially with my sister. Like she told me a lot of things that really clarified a lot of things and made perfect sense. You know, like why she protected me from that lifestyle. And um, yeah, yeah, it makes sense, man. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, so what did, obviously that's, I mean, you hear that story. And to me, I think it's just, you know, uh, that sounds like a really ripe place for addiction, right? I mean, or yeah. emotional challenges, right? And trauma and, and that kind of thing. What did, how did you get from there to recovery? You know, what's the, what's the end of that story where you start to get some of that, you know, emotional Jeez, insight and, and change? Again, I, I was, I was clueless up till the age of 40. Um, I, I, I was uh, in and out of probation. Um, I, I, went to prison in 08 and I went again in 15 and, uh, I stayed sober for anytime I was sober. Um, it was because I was incarcerated. I, I didn't know what recovery was. I didn't know I wanted recovery. I didn't know what lied on the other side of recovery or of, of addiction. Uh, I just, I had, I was clueless, man. I, I thought that was my life. That, that's the way it's going to end. And that was it. Um, so 2015, I mean, I'm, I'm heavy, 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 heavy in the methamphetamine. Um, I was on, a, I think it was an eight or nine year binge. And again, the only time I was sober is I got incarcerated for a short time or whatever. But 2015, I picked up some heavy charges looking at six to 15 years in prison because of my priors. And for the last 18 months of my freedom, um, I was suicidal and I just wanted to kill myself. And I was trying to figure out a way how I could kill the cop and the cop could kill me and just all kinds of things were going through my head. And um, finally, I mean, and, and, and this, this is what's really cool is that looking back on all these things, when I finally had that burning bush moment, that's God was already present in my life. And I thought he had abandoned me a long time ago. I was very mad at God. Not that I didn't believe in him. But I was just very angry with him. Like, why'd you take my dad at 40 years old? Still having that mentality, um, that speaks volumes of where I was mentally. Right. Um, so, you know, he, he was, he was already showing up in my life, setting up these, these, these next, um, next steps in my life. So I, I go into court and I'm, I'm expecting to get six to 15 years. And, um, it was my last court date, the last continuance that I was allowed to have the prosecutor actually turned over evidence to the, to the judge that liberated me of that sentence. And I was sentenced to a mandatory four months for an aggravated DUI. And because of the weapons charge I had, um, which was a man mandatory with no priors was five years. Um, but the police report didn't align with the dash cam footage and the process or the, the judge said, yeah, I can't, I can't sentence him to this time. I'm going to give him a five-year probation tail. You're going to go do four months in department of corrections. And then, you know, that's it. So I had every intention of staying on drugs. In fact, when I got taken into custody, I had a, an eight ball of meth in my, in my boot thinking I could sneak it into jail and stay high till I got to the prison yard or whatever. And God had other plans for me. Um, I didn't get snuck in. And the first day I'm in jail, I'm like, oh, this sucks. You know, here I am 40 years old going to prison again. Um, the next morning I woke up hopeless and sober for the first time. And um, I reached for a Bible 
and I opened up the Bible and I read the scripture, man, and God revealed himself to me full blown right then and there. It was, it was the most intense experience I've ever had in my life surpassed any drug, anything. It was just intense, man. He, he revealed himself to me and I felt the love and peace of, of Jesus Christ right there that, that, that enveloped me and I knew everything was going to be okay. And he, you know, I, I'm not going to say I heard it out loud, but I, I inaudibly heard him saying, everything's going to be fine. Give me three years. Give me, you know, have faith in me. And I, and I, I bought it and I believed it and I felt it. And that carried me through the next four months in DOC. Um, I got aligned with the right people in there, the right books. Um, I just really focused on, and it wasn't the 12 steps, but when I got out and saw what the 12 steps were, um, that's exactly what I had done. And what I started doing is going through the 12 steps, making amends to people, accepting responsibility, accountability, all those things. And I really changed my life in there. When I, when I came out with all the obstacles I was supposed to um, you know, overcome, they weren't obstacles anymore. Like it was just like, okay, it's part of the path. And it, it was very, it was almost effortless, man, for me. You know, um, I got out, I got enrolled in college at age 40 years old. Immediately, I went to college and I signed up for this college and I started going to college. I got a dishwashing job for $11 an hour and I was washing dishes. And um, I mean, one thing led to another, man. I started a recovery program at this college and started getting all this momentum there. And then um, the opportunity for me to get into the field finally presented itself through all these amazing synchronicities and God shots, man. And, and next thing I know, I'm down in Tucson working at this facility, working with probation and parole. Um, you know, really developing business with those agencies, the treatment center I was working at down there, because that's what I knew, man. I didn't know what business development was, but I knew I could help people. And part of my revelation that I had was on a prison yard and I'm standing there looking around and I'm like, it was one of those God shots, those moments, because I was super connected. I just, it was revelation after revelation after epiphany in prison. It's just like, oh my God, oh my God. I was just like waking up and so alive and I had this revelation that I was going to come back into these prisons and help people. And, you know, it's a pretty odd thought to have when you're standing on a yard with a bunch of convicts thinking, yeah, I'm coming back in and I'm helping people. Well, that, that happened. You know, like I, I, I speak at, at, at parole, um, orientations. Uh, I speak to people on probation. I, I, I work with POs and parole officers and, um, I've been back into prison and talk to guys in there. And it's, it's crazy. You know, God has been so present in my life. Once I finally allowed him into my life, it's just been, uh, it's a charmed, blessed life, man. It's crazy. So Frank, before, before you had this revelation in, in prison, what was your exposure to God before that in spirituality? Uh, my grandma used to, you know, drag me to Catholic church with her and I hated it. You know, I, I, like I said, I was very, I was very, I don't, I don't know if ignorance is the right word, but I was very just blind to things when I was younger. I, I didn't understand the meaning of spirituality. You know, I didn't, I, I just thought God was a guy in the sky. You know, I really had no understanding of God other than me being really mad at him, you know, for him taking my dad and for him making my life this way, blaming everybody but myself and taking responsibility for, you know, where I was, you know, that was, that was the only perception I had of God is he's mean, 
you know. That's an so, inc- that's an incredible <laughs> step to go from, you know, that kind of perception of God to being open to what he has to say to you or, or whatever that experience was like for you. That seems like a, a huge leap. Yeah, it was. It was I mean, it, it was a, it was totally unexpected. I, I, you know, I guess what they call it in the rooms is the burning bush. Hmm. And like it was it was there was nothing I was going to do about it. There was no fighting it. There was it was just so real and so intense that it was like, holy shit. Okay. Okay. I hear you. <laughs> you know, so. Well, and it's interesting that you that you chose to pick up the Bible, right? That you know, like maybe that was the only connection that you could have right there and then. But it's it just it's interesting how the series of events and a lot of people that I talk to they have these pivotal moments in their lives, right? And they can pinpoint yeah. those pivotal moments. Yeah. Yeah, and, and they're ever-present in my everyday life, man. It's, it's just, you know, and being able to work with this population of individuals that are somewhat motivated to get sober and they just need a little bit of encouraging and motivation to be able to carry those guys through has been, it's just... I can't like when I look back on where I was six years ago and where I am today and I have families calling me and parole officers and POs and other agencies calling me and individuals calling me and trusting me with their lives. Like that's just, Hmm. that's God. It's nothing I did. You know, it's, it's just being an instrument of God and allowing him to work through me. You know, I I have a, I'm just absolutely curious. And I, so I have kind of a nerdy therapist question and you may not even know what I'm talking about, but, but go with me if you can. So I I was in a training here, not terribly long ago. It was probably before pre COVID and they were talking about generational wounds that we, you know, this idea that we bring these generational wounds from our ancestors, maybe, you know, maybe our dads and our moms or our grandmas and grandpas or even before that. Um, do you feel like you carry some of that generational wound from, you know, your dad and maybe some of that? So is that like cell memory? Yeah, some, something like that. I mean, there's a whole theory around it, but cell memory and, and maybe wounds that, you know, it's genetic because you're, you've got their genetic inside of you, but you have, you, sure. you bring their trauma on some level inside your body. I, I, I definitely believe in that. And I believe I unknowingly believed in that. Um, philosophy. Um, but when I had like that moment and there, and there were a lot of them too. I mean, after the first initial one, it, it was just nonstop. I was just always, I always had chills and I was always just my always choking up, but I felt all that stuff being released for me. Like not even through therapy. It was just like, just God just saying, just letting these things go. And like, you don't have to carry this anymore. And having the faith to know that I didn't have to carry those things. Like, I, I mean, I haven't been through therapy, you know, and God knows you guys don't know the half of what, I, like, there's a lot of things I'm obviously not sharing with y'all, but I mean, there's, I probably should have been through therapy, you know, but I, I really feel like God just let all those things go. When I, when I gave the, over the power to God to take those things from me, I don't, I don't feel like I carry that stuff anymore. You know, I just don't. So how do you go from that to convince people to come into treatment? <laughs> You're not a very good example of treatment, right? <laughs> I know, right? Um, I mean, that's a really good question. I, I think I have the innate ability and, and I, I've been blessed with having people trust me to follow these steps to, you know, 
I mean, what, what I say to a lot of these kids and a lot of these ones that I have this conversation with is that, you know, do you believe in God? Yeah. Or not even ask them now. Like, but you know, you got to understand like what I've been through and for me to be in your life right now, that's God right now. Like me, me being in front of you right now and, and, and coaxing you over this finish line and into treatment, motivating you, you got to understand that's a God shot because I shouldn't be here right now. And I'm blessed to be able to be here and having the opportunity to help you get across this line and get to the light. Um, you know, that that's usually all it takes, man. Hmm. And you know, my lived experience too, you know, um, they listen to me because my testimony, I, I mean, I have some pictures that I'd show you guys and you'd be like, that ain't you. <laughs> it's me, you know, um, you know, fully redeemed and, and, uh, I mean, the transformation of my life spiritually, mentally, physically, just in every aspect of my life is just 180, 180 degrees different than it was, uh, six years ago. You know? um, yeah. You, you've got like a healthy aura, right? Have you always been physically fit? Have you always been in good shape? Or is this a recent thing too? Um, no, when I was in high school, obviously I was fit. You know, and then um, after high school, you, you know, you start shooting heroin in your neck and, um, you know, cocaine and alcohol. You kind of get out of shape and, you know, um, and then you get on meth for test. So I was, my, my addiction consisted of uh, cocaine, alcohol, heroin, and benzos for 10 years. And then I, I went to treatment for 30 days and came home sober um, on Suboxone and a bunch of pharmaceuticals. So I'm like, I could drink and I can do Coke because I don't have a problem with that stuff. You know, it was only heroin. And, you know, I got, I, the day I came home from treatment, I got Coke and, and started drinking and smoking pot and doing my Adderall and my Xanax and my Suboxone and all that stuff. And then I was introduced to meth. And um, so, yeah, I was, I, I haven't been physically cognizant for 20 years prior to my, my sobriety. From 18 to 20, 18 to 40, I was, Pretty messed up looking, you know. So, so crazy. <laughs> what's the program like at Buena Vista? Tell us about you know what you're doing now. What's what's the what are the focuses there, and and you know what are the, what are kind of the high I'd say high points of of what you guys are accomplishing. Well, we we have 155 inpatient beds here, man, and um, so my job is is business development representative. So, like I said, I'm working with parole for, so we accept Medicaid, um, for detox and intensive outpatient and our, our Tucson facility accepts Medicaid for the full continuum, our Chandler facility, which is another set. So Chandler and Tucson are both 70 bed facilities. Okay. There's 35 beds of detox, 35 bed residential. Tucson is, is Medicaid heavy. Um, Chandler is commercial. Um, and then we have the 14 bed detox. It's kind of like a boutique detox, 14 bed detox up in near Cave Creek, Arizona. Um, we accept the Medicaid and commercial there as well. Um, but our focus, man, is really just to, just to get the word out in the community to, you know, obviously I love working with individuals that are, that have my kind of story on probation, on access, um, very limited income getting them through our detox and plugged into the community um, resources that we have here. You know, we have, we work with a lot of great programs in the Valley that have little, I don't want to say boutique treatment um, curriculums, but it, they're, they're not large facilities. You know, 
15, 20, 30 bed facilities for the, for the Medicaid population. Um, however, our business model is, is really focused on, um, commercial, you know, so we, you know, we, we have the, we have the 35 bed residential and 35 bed detox in Chandler and then the 14 bed detox, which is mainly mostly commercial. So, um, I think I kind of got lost on the question. I forgot what (laughs) the question was, man. That's what you're doing. That's what, that's what you answered. So, um, so detox, detox heavy, right. We've had, um, we've had a couple of people recently where, you know, the conversation was really, they never looked for treatment, right. And whether they were in jail or whether they were in kind of a forced detox, right. At some point, someone showed up from a facility. Yeah. Gave them a quick heads up, you know, and had, had some magnetism and had some positivity in their life where, you know, that person walked out of whatever their circumstances was right into treatment without really having ever considered it. Right. Right. Prior to that point, because they just didn't have hope, right. They had, they had the guilt and they had the shame and they had all of the negativity there. And so, I, I, I mean, I think that can have a little bit of a stigma of like, I think those relationships are very valuable, right? Both yeah. for you guys as a detox, but also as a, as a treatment f- facility. And I think when you talk about going into prisons, right? When you talk about putting yourself in a position where you really can't market to, right? This isn't, yeah. this isn't search engine optimization. This isn't get, getting a billboard up. This isn't any of the traditional streams. You've really got to go out and you've got to build those relationships You've got to be, you know, an approachable and an understand person, understandable yeah. person like you are. Right. Yeah. And so, um, you know, to me, it's obvious that you'd have success, right. You know, that you've yeah. got a lot of the intangible elements as a person of saying, you know, this is, if, 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 if I could do this, you can too. Come yes. together. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I think that's yeah. awesome. That's amazing. Yeah. So Frank, do you, so, um, do you, what do you see in your future? Do you see you do, you know, doing this kind of work forever or do you see something beyond this? Interventions. That's, that's my long-term professional goal, I think, is to be able to do interventions. And what does that you look know, like? In what terms? In, in two terms, in how do you become an inter- interventionist and then what, you know, what do you, what does an interventionist do and who are they connecting with? Well, I mean, if, if I can just be real, I think we, there's been plenty of times we perform interventions on a, a non, I mean, but not interventions. You know, there's plenty of times where I meet with a family and an individual who's just like, F this, I'm not going to treatment, F you, who the F are you, you know, that, that is that, you know, thing. And I come in, into the mix and I'm able to talk to the individual, pull them aside and kind of coach the family through it on, uh, what's the word, uh, unofficially, um, you know, I think that that's what I was groomed to do through life. I have the lived experience. I, I had that, I have lived experience, man, you know, I'll just leave it at that. Um, I'm effective working with individuals and families, getting the families to understand you're approaching it wrong or, Hey, like just, it, it's just a, a natural ability like baseball for me, getting somebody to commit to treatment mm-hmm. or to at least sit down and listen. If it doesn't happen today, they're going to call me in a couple of weeks, be like, Hey, I think I'm ready. 
you know, and that's just having, having the patience and, um, professionalism to, to be able to approach them the right way, man. You know, I mean, I, I, that's where I'm going to be next time we talk within a year or two. That's my prediction is I'll be somewhere doing interventions. You mentioned explaining to the family that, you know, they're doing it wrong. To me, that seems like maybe half the battle, right? Sometimes it, I mean, it seems like it'd be a challenge to be able to, to come to this family and who's expecting you to do the work, right? Help us fix this individual yeah. in our family and have to be able to have the conversation. You know, some of this might be your fault. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Like that's, that's hard to take on yeah. as a family, yeah. right? Yeah. And, yeah. and let's say the individual does get fixed by some miracle, you know, you or the solution and they, they leave and come back. Family can't be the same. There has no. to be changes on 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 kind of both sides of the fence. There, right? How, you know, how does that conversation go for you? Do you feel like that's as easy of a sell for you, or? Yeah, I, I think it is, man. Um, eight out of ten times, they understand. You know, like y- y'all got to do your work too. This is not just this is not their problem. It's, it's y'all's problem, and you guys got to do your work too. You know. Um, because I, I mean, in my experience, when I do get these individuals that are not going to treatment and not open to get help, go into treatment, the family kind of like, okay, what else? And they start listening a little bit more, you know, and there's, there's a lot of those cases, man. I just like, let me just talk to this guy real quick. Let me talk to your son. We well, ain't going to talk to you. Okay. Let me talk to him. Hmm. Next thing you know, the parents are sending me emails. Oh my God. What'd you say to my son? He's, he's going to go to treatment, you know, and. No, I'm not surprised by that. I think you've got, I think you've got a good energy and a good charisma. So that doesn't surprise me. Um, I'm sure, you know, we, we kind of work in a bunch of different areas, but, uh, you know, I, I would think that hopefully we've got some listeners who hear this and think, okay, Frank's our guy, right? He's, he's the one who can get through, especially for, you know, I'm sure you get through to a lot of different people, but, you know, I'm picturing, (laughs) who that teenager is, right? And who's, who's, who's going to be somebody that a teenager or an athlete or, you know, whoever is going to listen to, you know, it feels like a no brainer, you know, to me. So what's, what's the, what's the way that they get in touch with you? Where do people find you? Um, I mean, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, on Facebook, Frank Eisenhower, um, through Buena Vista Health and Recovery Centers. You, you can reach out to me directly at 480-798-6902. That's my personal cell phone number. Pick up 24-7. Cool. So, yeah, I, I think uh, it's, you know, it's an opportunity, right? And I think that's yeah. the, um, I, I don't think that every facility is right for everybody. I don't think that every path is right for everybody, right? But, you know, when I hear, when I hear you talk and I hear some of the things you're talking about, uh, it would be attractive to me. So that's why yeah. I think it's, I, I think it's worth you know, putting that out there um, and seeing who we can help get sent your way. I appreciate you guys so much. Mm. It was a fun conversation, Frank. It's been fantastic getting to know you and uh, just kind of hearing your story is, it's incredible to me. I know for when I, when I first started as a therapist, I did an internship at a halfway house of women coming out of prison and, and listening to some of the stories that they shared with me it blew me away and it, it was life changing, right? But I, I had to step back and, and reassess what, you know, what really was, what, what, how I wanted to look at people because I didn't come from that kind of a background. 
And, you know, I, I had, you know, makes me feel like, I mean, I didn't come from wealth, but I certainly was, had everything that I needed and all, of, you know, all of my needs met and, and certainly was safe. And here's someone saying, you know, the one that sticks out to me was that I started running away. She said, I started running away when I was nine years old. And, and I, I was safer on the street than I was in my own home. And she would just tell these stories of living on the street. And, and she wouldn't talk about the trauma in her home, but, but it definitely changed my whole outlook and how I wanted to think about people. And so very powerful. That's a powerful environment. And, and the fact that you can talk about God and have people take you seriously and, and not write you off because you're, you know, you're out there talking about God and not just a higher power, but you know, you're making it somebody that has an image and a name and a person and, and reality, I think is pretty huge. Yeah. So thanks. Yeah, thanks for yeah. what you do. Thank you, Shelly. Kurt, thank you very much for having me on guys. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. It's our pleasure.